This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, Feb 20th. And uh, we've got a great show for you. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Just uh, let me ask you, though, first of all, what did you think of the big TV show? The world debut of The Conspiracy Show on Vision TV on Friday night, Feb 18th. I hope you were watching at 11 p.m. Eastern. And on the 25th, next Friday, we've got two more episodes coming your way on The Conspiracy Show. Again, Vision TV, 11 p.m. Eastern, and uh, the two episodes. Episode three is Past Life Regression. We'll look into the practices of of, of past life regression therapy. And uh, episode four, airing at 11.30 Eastern, Are We Running Out of Oil? This is a debate between proponents of the uh, the fossil fuel theory and peak oil, which is that we're running out of oil very quickly, and uh, those who suggest uh, that oil is in inexhaustible supply. It's abiotic. It's not a fossil fuel. That's a very interesting concept. I hope you'll be there for that. All right. Hour two of the program, I'm going to speak with Christian Wilde, who has been trumpeting uh, adult stem cell therapy for many years, and now it's starting to be embraced by the medical establishment. St- adult stem cells, uh, it's just, it's miraculous. They are, uh, they have this ability to, uh, to, to heal the body and to go wherever there is damage inside the body and heal uh, heart tissue and, and, and rebuild lungs and kidneys and perhaps even cure MS and Parkinson's. He'll be here to tell us all about that. But first, the gentleman in the, uh, the chair next to me is no stranger to the show. Of course, one of Canada's foremost. No, 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 no. He is Canada's foremost, not one of. Canada's foremost exopolitics uh, researchers. And uh, he's actually going to be sitting in the air chair uh, conducting the proceedings a week from tonight on The Conspiracy Show while I'm off uh, uh, down in Arizona at the um, big UFO Congress uh, down there taping uh, interviews for the upcoming TV show. So Victor Vigiani 
Welcome, welcome, welcome. Great to be here once again. Yeah, it's always uh, a pleasure to join you for these kinds of experiences, Richard. And tonight, uh, once again, the sky is going to be the limit. Are you ready to, to take control of this spaceship next week? Well, yeah, I, I know where the, the rudder is. I know uh, <laughs> where the wings are, but it's a matter of uh, filling big shoes. Uh, you will uh, admit that I have to fill big shoes, won't you, Richard? Um, no, I won't admit that. I'll let <laughs> others decide that. You, you Listen, you're going to be uh, fine, and you're in great hands with uh, Dan Ellison. Each All you have to do is you just sit, you work your mouth, and you'll, uh, you know, it's magic that comes out of your, That's right. yeah. out of your mouth. Looking so not forward to, worry. to it. Looking forward to it. Although I warn you, mm-hmm. uh, you you're not going to talk about UFOs next week, actually. I've got a show lined up for you, and yeah. you're going you're gonna to spread your wings a little bit and get outside of that UFO box. Are you okay with That's that? That's just fine, and looking forward to it. It sounds like a very exciting show. Yes, we're going to talk. Uh, you're going to talk uh, with uh, some of the preeminent people involved in. Uh, oh, we're going to. You're going to discuss the dangers of EMF, dirty electricity, uh, which is a big concern now. Cell towers everywhere, microwaves, uh, and now these new smart meters. Uh, um, you know, people living cheek by jowl with uh, high voltage uh, uh, wires. So it's a huge concern, and um, I know that you're going to. Uh, you're going to uh, execute superbly. All right. We are going to talk about UFOs tonight, though, uh, Victor, of course. And uh, I'm uh, uh, actually very excited to, to, uh, to meet this gentleman. We've, uh, we've emailed back and forth, talked over the phone. And uh, this is, well, they call it Britain's Roswell. We're going to find out what the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident really was all about uh, with uh, the co-author of an, a very important book uh, on this issue called Left at Eastgate, a first-hand account of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, its cover-up and investigation. A great pleasure to welcome Peter Robbins to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Peter. Hi, guys, and thank you for having me as a guest. Not at all. Say hello to Victor Vigiani. Victor, pleasure hearing your voice for the first time. Glad you can be with us, Peter. Me too. Larry, why is Rendlesham Forest... First of all, where is Rendlesham Forest? Um, Rendlesham Forest is um, in East Anglia, Suffolk, uh, an area in the southeast corner of England, uh, about a 70-mile drive or so from London. All right. Yeah, southeast, and that's... um, uh, yeah, that's accurate. And and why is the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident referred to as Britain's Roswell? Um, I think it has more to do with popular culture than a similarity between the events. Um, the incident is simply Great Britain's best known and best documented UFO incident. Uh, hence... Uh, putting it forward um, as the Roswell of Great Britain, basically uh, because of name recognition, not because of similarity of events. All right. And we just passed the 30th anniversary of this incident, uh, which occurred over Christmas back in uh, 1980. But fill in some of the, uh, give us a thumbnail sketch. I mean, it's such a, uh, we're talking about an event that uh, happened over three or four days. But just give us a a thumbnail sketch of the events that transpired back uh, in late December of 1980 in the Rendlesham Forest area. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. Um, It occurred over, uh, to the best of our knowledge, a three consecutive night period from Christmas night uh, until three nights later. Um, uh, in the forest and around the forest, uh, which touched upon uh, two highly secured 
major NATO RAF bases, one uh, manned by the British, the other uh, by the American Air Force. Um, I should state very briefly two important uh, backstories to this, which add to the real-life drama. Number one, um, at the time, if you go to any major newspaper in the uh, Western world as to the biggest international story that week, it was Soviet concern over a pro-democracy movement that was emanating out of the Gdansk shipyards in Poland, headed up by an unknown electrician named Lech Walesa, who went on to become the first democratically elected uh, president of Poland. Um, what we did not know um, and was not reported to us that their concern was manifest. In fact, the Soviets had massed at least 100,000 infantry and tank troops along the Soviet border. And in their estimation, if the, uh, the movement got out of hand, a la Hungary in 1956, they were ready to roll. Um, NATO was ready to uh, meet them on this. And in fact, uh, RAF Bentwaters, RAF Woodbridge, uh, the bases in the Rendlesham Forest Zone um, were on a full red alert. Red is one step below black, and black is war. Uh, I think it's fair to say that other NATO bases in Europe and the United Kingdom were on the same footing. The other thing is, um, while uh, the United States Treaty with Her Majesty's government at the time disallowed uh, nuclear ordnance to be stored in their country, um, the East Anglia area um, indeed did house something like 300,000 kilotons of nuclear devices. Uh, tactical nuclear devices meant to be used on the battlefield. Is that, not, um, is that disputed or is that no longer disputed? Well, um, let me put it this way. Um, before he died, um, Lord Admiral Peter Hill Norton, who in his time was Admiral of the Fleet, highest-ranking British naval officer, went on to become um, the head of the, um, well, the Chief of Staff of the Ministry of Defense, and then after he retired became a member of Parliament was able to confirm for us, not the exact number, this is the number um, that we understand, uh, my co-author, working around these devices at the time with the secret clearance um, that existed. Um, to give a little perspective here, a one kiloton tactical nuclear device, uh, if detonated, has a 10-mile kill radius. You have a, uh, a circle uh, with a diameter of 10 miles, um, where everything is dead or dying, that center mile, the so-called bullseye, would be glass. Uh, so there was a certain amount of understandable uh, tension when we began uh, with the UFO incident. Um, over the course of these three nights, unknowns, um, fully lit, came in over the weapons storage area, and that is the nuclear weapons storage area. Um, they shown lights that we would now uh, describe as like industrial lasers down into the area, remembering that um, there was a lot of moisture in the air, so you could see those lines coming right down to Earth. Um, on the first night, uh, law enforcement personnel at the back gate, the east gate of RAF Woodbridge, observed a light go down into the woods. And uh, two of those uh, eyewitnesses, John Burroughs and Jim Penniston, are very public about their experience of going out to investigate the area. Uh, they did not um, see a crash. Uh, there was no ground concussion or shock. There was no explosion or fire. But this is, again, a highly secured NATO base at a time of high security. 
and uh, they radioed in their observations and, in fact, headed out by vehicle with a, uh, another uh, law enforcement personnel into the forest. Uh, when they couldn't get any far in the vehicle, they headed in by foot and came upon a machine um, that uh, they described basically as black, almost the appearance of black glass, not huge, um, maybe seven feet on a side, an equilateral triangle tapering up. They got very close to it. Um, Jim touched it, uh, observed not lettering, not hieroglyphics, not numbers, but you know, something like that, and did his best to copy them into his notebook, made a drawing as well. Um, they have uh, incomplete memories of their time out there. The report was made. Um, the next night, unknowns were seen over the twin base complex and over the forest, seeming to almost move around in a grid-like pattern. Uh, a number of them, um, at least two or three, came down into the forest. Uh, there was nothing ethereal or gossamery about this. The ones that did come down uh, tore out a certain amount of forest canopy. Um, one um, certainly uh, left triangular impressions, uh, pad-shaped impressions in the ground. Uh, castings were taken of those plaster castings by Deputy Base Commander Charles I. Halt and his men on the second night. Um, they, uh, Mr. Halt, who uh, now is also uh, on the public uh, scene about this, and also very outspoken, um, admits that he went out that night to disprove what he thought was uh, kind of a nonsensical explanation, and then essentially himself kind of entered a twilight zone situation with one of these things coming in very close overhead uh, above his men. Peter, let me, light... Peter, let me yeah. stop you there. Uh, so we're into day two. Let's uh, take a time out. We'll come back. We'll get uh, Victor Vigiani into the proceedings. We'll also uh, find out uh, how and when uh, you hooked up with another one of the uh, the witnesses, often described as the first whistleblower, Larry Warren. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll continue to discuss Britain's Roswell, the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. Peter Robbins, the uh, co-author of Left at Eastgate, a first-hand account of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. Victor Vigiani in studio. Stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. All right, we're back. Uh, Victor Vigiani in studio, exopolitics researcher, and uh, Peter Robbins on the line from Ithaca, New York, co-author of Left at East Gate. We're talking about the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident just past the 30th anniversary, which was uh, December, late December 1980. And just to, uh, to to go over the geography a little bit here, uh, uh, Peter, the Rendlesham sure. Forest, again, in the uh, the south uh, east of England, the Suffolk area, and the Rendlesham Forest is uh, uh, surrounding two NATO bases, one an RAF, which would be Woodbridge, and then Bentwaters, which was leased to the U.S. Air Force. Is that correct? That's correct. They both uh, carried the designation RAF, even though one was American. Okay, so the the uh, the witnesses uh, that were that you're describing uh, of this uh, these lights coming down and uh, of a craft uh, apparently landing, we're talking about U.S. Air Force Security Patrol personnel, correct? Um, we're, so far, we're talking about law enforcement personnel who would be the equivalent of. 
um, civilian police officers within the Air Force, where my co-author was uh, a member of the security police detachment, more the paramilitary version of uh, law enforcement on base. All right. So we're in day two. For day one, uh, Peniston Burroughs go out. They see a craft. Peniston walks up to it, touches it, takes notes. Day two, the uh, the base subcommander. Uh, uh, deputy base deputy commander, base commander Colonel Holt, goes out yes. basically to disprove what had been reported to him, and he himself sees uh, uh, lights in the sky. Uh, does he see an, a craft land? Uh, no, but it goes overhead and shines a light right down to the feet of the men uh, and him that were in their contingent. Uh, Mr. Halt has been very outspoken about saying, and I may be paraphrasing ever so slightly, that what he and his men saw that night was not made by any government on this planet. All right, so do you want to proceed with uh, day yeah. two and three? Uh, yes. Um, um, they took, uh, Halt and his men took uh, plaster castings of landing impressions. In the impressions on the uh, trees where bark had been ripped off, a forest canopy had been ripped out, there was about eight times in excess of the trace amounts of background beta and gamma radiation uh, that one would normally expect to find naturally. Uh, that statistic was confirmed by the Ministry of Defense some years later. Uh, on the third and final night, my co-author, who again was an airman first class and a member of the security police, um, those men were taken off their postings uh, around the base perimeter. And uh, Larry Warren, my co-author, uh, was picked up by a base vehicle uh, driven by Lieutenant Bruce England. Uh, Sergeant Adrian Bestinza was in there, other men, and they went to the base motor pool where a light all was hooked up to their vehicle. Other vehicles were also gathering there, many of them having these devices hooked up. A light all is basically the civilian equivalent gas operated of the big Klieg lights that we all associate with big Hollywood premieres. Right, right. Um, sometime after that, and it's now after midnight, as I recall, they head off the base, and they travel five or six miles, and they go past the Eastgate Road of their sister base, go a little beyond that, and make a left turn onto a logging road that takes them into a wooded area in the forest, hence uh, the conjugation of the title of our book. They go in about half a mile. The men are ordered to disembark. And a minor treaty violation, they left the base with loaded weaponry, which you uh, were not supposed to do. Those weapons were collected by a base armorer, and the men were broken into three men on armed groups, each group with a Motorola radio and an order to head into the forest that way and quote-unquote investigate a disturbance. They did so. The further they headed into the woods, uh, the more they experienced something that uh, John Burroughs and Jim Penniston experienced the first night, a ferocious static electricity charge in the air. Um, the more they headed into the woods, they began to see a glow, which ultimately was in a farmer's field, uh, Capel Green. Um, and it was a round, self-illuminated glow, a ground fog. Um, and the men were ordered to surround this essentially oval or circular ground fog. Now, ground fogs in England are very common. Uh, uh, a, a circular or uh, oval-shaped one, self-illuminated, is not. There was no ambient light that night. The men surrounded it and held their ground. Shortly after, all observed a small reddish-colored light coming in from the direction of the North Sea. Observed it, and I think probably with increasing uh, concern, as it not only came in over their area, it came in over the field. And, I don't know, 30, 50 feet up, 
without a sound, it exploded with such magnesium brightness that we know from Air Force medical records, it burned the retinas of my co-author's eyes. Um, I imagine, I, I deduce that it did that with other men as well. Like a wall of flashbulbs going off, uh, some of your listeners may not know what flashbulbs are, but we do, um, it took a few seconds for their vision to come back. And when it did, sitting in the ground fog was a fully articulated machine of undetermined origin uh, that caused some of the men to run off. Uh, most held their ground, and um, a standoff ensued. Again, these men were unarmed. They were very close by. The circle around the machine was probably only about 20 feet or so from it, a uh, little more, a little less. At one point, Larry and uh, Sergeant Bastinza next to him were ordered uh, by Sergeant Ball with him to go in for a closer look and went right up to it and backed up again. Larry described it as easier to see with your peripheral vision. It played almost tricks with your vision. It seemed to be like Mother of Pearl by one description, and um, they could see their shadows move on it, except that there were no lights behind them. You know, um, didn't Larry say that his shadows were pulled towards it? That is one description. There was nothing normal in terms of lighting effect. Uh, the light alls were brought out into the field. All of them had been filled and checked at the motor pool. None of them worked. Mm -hmm. um, this standoff continued, and Larry observed, along with Adrian and other men there, a glow on the far side of it that began to move around toward their direction. And as it came into view and as it receded, three distinct shapes were seen in the glow. Um, they were intelligences of some sort. Uh, humanoid in appearance, but not your archetypical gray, more stocky. Uh, there was a sense of translucency to them, and they were floating about a foot off the ground. Um, I know how this sounds, but this is the way it is. Um, after a fashion, the um, base wing commander, uh, Gordon Williams, um, came into view. Uh, probably, well, coming we can deduce from a holiday party. There was quite a round of them going on between Christmas and New Year's because he was fully dressed in uh, civilian kind of evening attire. And again, unarmed, he stepped through the circle and uh, essentially faced off with these beings. Um, they looked at him, he looked at them, and nothing else ensued into the night. After a while, men were taken out of the area. Larry was in the second-to-last group. As he got back to the point where the forest met the field, he turned around, fixed the event in his mind, and then was taken back to base under strict orders not to discuss the matter. This is the most capsule description of the events, and I'm missing a lot of specifics, but it will give your listeners uh, an idea of... Um, the impact uh, and the implications of, of the basics. Oh, I think you hit most of the high points, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I must say, Peter, that uh, in reading the book, um, and even just for our, our listeners' sake, you did give a, a good encapsulated version of it, but in the writing of the book, I must say that as I was reading it, the hair on my arms, uh, static electricity being missing, stood up uh, virtually yeah. every other paragraph because what Larry went through and what almost what um, forty men were on site at, at one given time. It was uh, several dozen. To several be sure, dozen. Yeah. Uh, not even counting the men on the other nights, of course. All of course, yeah. But in in the in the account that that both you and Larry uh, give, 
it is so descriptive, it is so um, disarming and disquieting to know that human beings would have that kind of encounter. And I, I must congratulate you on the way you put the book together because it is well, absolutely astounding literature. You know, even all these years later, I can't tell you how much that means to me. We put our lives into this for almost a decade. And the book, from the handshake until publication, took nine years to write. And um, the things that we went through in the course of it um, are discussed in the book. And uh, neither one of us have ever been the same. And I am as proud as I've ever been of anything that we were able to complete it get it out and have it be a, a, a genuine bestseller in the United Kingdom. All right, Peter, we'll step away again for a moment or two, and uh, when mm. we come back, I want to find out uh, what was it about Larry Warren uh, that convinced you this was all true, and uh, take it from there in terms of you know how this uh, partnership between the two of you evolved and, and uh, when you decided to write this book, and then we'll get back into some of the details as well of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, its investigation and cover-up. Peter Robbins, the co-author with us in studio, Victor Vigiani, Canada's foremost exopolitics researcher. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Say, friends, what do you think of the TV show so far? On, uh, well, just a couple days ago, you got to see the the world premiere of uh, episode one of The Conspiracy Show on Vision TV, Friday night at 11 o'clock. I hope you were gathered around the old uh, television to watch uh, the first episode featuring our in-studio guest tonight, in fact, Victor Vigiani. UFO Disclosure was our first episode, followed by 9-11 Controlled Demolition. You get two half-hour episodes back-to-back every Friday, and, of course, that kicked off on, uh, on Friday night. And uh, coming up on the 25th, we'll do it all over again, 11 p.m. Vision TV, our third episode. We'll roll that out for you. A close uh, examination of the past life regression phenomenon. Had a lot of fun making that one. Learned a lot, too. And then episode four, which uh, starts immediately following that one. Are we running out of oil? We'll uh, we'll look at the, uh, the abiotic versus the peak oil theories. That's The Conspiracy Show, Friday nights, 11 p.m., Vision TV, check local listings to see where you get uh, vision on your your local cable provider. All right, back to Rendlesham Forest. Peter Robbins is with us, co-author. How did you uh, manage uh, to uh, to hook up with Larry Warren? And in other words, why Larry Warren? Why wasn't it Halt? Why wasn't it Penniston Burroughs or or one of uh, several other dozen eyewitnesses to this event? Well, great question, um, Larry. Uh left the service with an honorable discharge about six months after the event. It had shaken him tremendously, uh, probably more uh, impacting on him was what happened to him after in terms of uh, the way he was treated by whether it was American intelligence or a national security agency, some people say Air Force Office of Special Investigation. I think it was the NSA. Um, but he went, um, he seeked out a, a UFO investigator who happened to be a police lieutenant in Connecticut, where his father was living at the time, and gave him as full an account as he could. This goes back to 1982. Uh, That information was put into the form of a Freedom of Information Act action, which resulted the following year with the release of the so-called HALT 
document, a one-page report, which Colonel Halt, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Halt, wrote about the event, compressing it a certain amount, minimalizing certain aspects, but confirming the reality of, of the basics, uh, which was made public um, in 1983. Um, in 1984, um, ufologists know that there was a huge UFO flap over Westchester, New York, and myself, Bud Hopkins, Alan Hynek, uh, I'm not comparing myself to them, but we were all there with many other people to hear local accounts of this. And Larry was there. And at a break, um, it was held at a local high school, I went out, and there he was on the front lawn talking to people about his experience. And I waded into the crowd, heard him out, and I thought, gosh, if this is a real, authentic military eyewitness to a UFO event, he's either tremendously courageous or maybe a little naive, because stuff happens to people like this, or both. Um, and when he had finished, and he seemed extremely personable and very uh, frank, I went up to him, I wished him good luck, and I shook his hand. He remembered that. And four years, three years later, in the summer of 1987, um, the MUFON organization had a huge uh, annual conference at Washington, at American University in Washington, D.C., to mark the 40th anniversary of Roswell and the Kenneth Arnold sightings, beginning of the modern age of UFOs. Larry was a speaker. I was a panelist. And we both heard each other speak and ran into each other in the hall on the Sunday. We both had agendas. Uh, I wanted to do an interview with him. He had decided for his reasons that I was the guy he wanted to write this book with. And the next weekend, he came down to my apartment in Manhattan, uh, let me uh, do a tremendous interview with him, gave me information um, that I just thought it was the best interview I had ever gotten, with permission to use anything I wanted, any way I wanted, uh, with no recompense to him. And I asked him why. And he said, frankly, I, I think you're the guy um, that I should write this book with. I was flattered, but um, wondering why he wasn't choosing a, uh, an established writer. And he said, because of the panel you were on uh, about the abduction phenomena, and you were speaking from a very unique point of view of somebody who grew up with a family member who went through this, and that was my sister, Helen. And I know you have the compassion. You're, you know, a good speaker. I think you're smart. I know you're dedicated to this. I think you're the guy. And we shook hands on it. Now, Larry never lied to me, but he did not tell me everything when we started, and he had good reason to. Had he, we wouldn't be talking right now. I would have been too frightened, and I'm not too proud to say that. Well, let's, um, let's uh, just take a moment and dwell on, on exactly the reason why Larry did what he did. And once again, I go back to the, the kind of graphic language and the, the expose that both of you put forward in the book regarding yes. what happened a couple of days um, after when Larry was, um, there was a note slipped under his door and he, had, he was asked to, um, yes. he got a call, I believe, to, to wait outside yes. for a car. And a big Lincoln showed up and he got in this big Lincoln and I think that's the beginning of the part that I sensed anyways that Larry became traumatized and uh, basically messed up because of what happened. Uh, there's, a, well, there's a descriptive yeah. part of all of this. I, I, know I think that, that's... Yeah. I'm that sorry to cut you off. Yeah. Yes, I, I think you're on the money there. Um, in fact, the timeline <clears throat> was um, Larry, who is ornery and outspoken and a tough-in-your-face kind of guy, who is a classic whistleblower. And I mean that in the... Uh, the true definition, not as a pop culture phrase. Mm -hmm. He actually grew up with the sense that there is a right and wrong, and when you see wrong, you address it, no matter who the aggressor is. 
Um, and he didn't keep his mouth shut. And the next morning, he called his mother from the base, mm-hmm. very close. And Larry had had sightings before. He had had experiences. This was not something that was brand new to him, which was something appropriate, appropriately he didn't mention at the time either. And the call was cut off. And he was called on the carpet a few hours later by uh, um, the appropriate base personnel. He denied that he had done it. Um, the base um, officer opened his drawer. There was a reel-to-reel TAC tape recorder there. He pushed a button, and it was the phone call. And he told Larry that he appreciated the stress these men were under. He didn't want to be too draconian in his punishment, but Larry had to choose between a monetary fine and losing a stripe. Larry chose the fine. Uh, which is another funny side story there. But later that day, yes, he did receive a call saying that uh, they wanted to... I'm sorry, back up a a few minutes here. Um, He and the men who were with him um, were debriefed that afternoon in the law enforcement office. Um, The three men that debriefed them, two of them were civilians that we have now identified as with a field arm of the National Security Agency, and the uniformed officer was not Air Force. He was a naval officer. They were told, and we feel convinced, that this is classic disinformation. And that's not a lie. That is a very skillful mix of truth and fact. That was Command- <laughs> Commander Richardson, correct? Um, I think so. Yeah. Good for you. Um, um, of truth and fiction pr- calculated to produce a certain effect. And I think in this case... It was put, to put the fear of God into these young men so that they would not talk about it. However, they were told, among other things, that, yes, what they had witnessed was uh, uh, intelligences from places unknown that had been coming and going for longer than you men have been alive. We are hopefully going to be able to go public with this at some point in the future, but it will not be soon. You are now sworn to secrecy on this. And um, we are going to show you some film footage here that we hope will explain the situation. And then what followed with a big old Bell and Howell projector, uh, with no narration and no explanations after, was a series of clips. And I will never forget his first description. I think his written descriptions are superb and right on, although well, as true as they can be. The first clip shows grainy black and white gun camera footage, World War II, mid-1940s, early 40s, uh, over Europe, and we see a white circular disc-shaped light whizzing through the frame. Cut. We're now over Korea. We know this because the planes taking the pictures were shooting downward at um, Soviet-style MiGs that the Chinese used in Korea. Uh, and you can see the rough, mountainous Korean terrain below them. Once again, a white circular craft, if you will, comes into frame and comes so close to the end MIG of the formation that the plane is destabilized, goes out of control, and starts to spiral down, and we see the explosion um, on the Earth cut. We're now in Vietnam. It is a American firefight camp, um, a firefighting base, and we see an American GI with the appropriate helmet, no shirt, bandolier, or shotgun shells mugging for the camera. And then the camera shakes, he points up, and they go to a long shot of uh, the, the jungle. And what is caught on camera is a large black triangle rising out of the jungle, foliage dropping off of it, 
camera goes back to the guy. He gives an expression, bang, cut to an astronaut on the moon. In this case, camera's on the astronaut. He looks up, points, camera pans up, and apparently he's in a crater. Now, there is no American moonshot recorded in the crater, and on the edge of the crater are, as I recall, several half-disc shapes sitting there on the crater. Bang, film runs out. The men are, of course, quite shocked, I'm guessing. Um, Larry asks what would happen if anyone did talk about this. And one of the civilians looks at him, smiles slightly, as I recall, and says, quote, unquote, and this has been confirmed to me by at least one of the men in the room, bullets are cheap. The men are then discharged. A few hours later, he's back uh, in his living uh, area, and he's told that there is a call for him. It is a captain who says the uh, personal debriefing is going to continue. Be out in front of uh, your uh, dormitory at 8 o'clock, as I recall. And a late model, yes, black American vehicle pulls up with an American plate, not uncommon overseas. Um, and two men get out, dressed civilians. One walks up to him, says, are you Larry Warren? Larry says, yes. He says, let me see some identification. Larry, being Larry, says, let me see some identification, which the man does not take well. The memory that Larry had of this for years was somewhat incomplete, but I sat only a few feet away years later when Bud Hopkins did a very careful regressive hypnosis with him. And what we then learned is as this exchange is going on, he sees Adrian Vestinza, who stood next to him in the field coming out of another housing unit, and then turns and sees that the man who was on the other side of the car is walking up to him, and he raises what looks like an unmarked aerosol can and hits him in the face with it. I, I mean, he sprays him in the face with it. Larry goes down. Uh, his eyes are running. His nose are running. He's having trouble uh, organizing himself. He is literally thrown in the back of the vehicle. It takes off. When they disembark, he is put into a small room which starts to move. He feels his ears pop. I've done some research in auditory hallucinations of a physiological reaction like that. Um, nobody I know who I've spoken to um, can, feels that that can be faked. He is then missing for 24, 30 hours, I forget. And his memory is of being in a huge underground complex where there are American personnel and there either are or they are made to believe that there are non-human beings there as well. He uh, is at a certain point, his memories um, of this are somewhat incomplete. Uh, men who ask where he is, his friends while he's gone, are told that he's on emergency leave. He emerges um, through a building that at the time also housed the base photo processing area. A door, you know, he walks through a door, it closes, it self-locks, and he's in this area where he brings his camera film. He walks outside, he gets very drunk that New Year's, and um, that is that part of the debriefing. Um, again, highly compressed, but um, extremely laid out in great, great careful detail in left at Eastgate. Uh, Peter, forgive me, uh, I have to ask. Yeah. It's the, uh, the elephant in the room. Why, why did you believe Larry? Yes, that, you're, you're absolutely right. That was the question I never got to. I heard him speak in Washington. Now, again, when I heard him speak on the front lawn of that high school, 
I was just fascinated, um, but I couldn't really make a character judgment. It was kind of a extraordinary novelty, and when I heard him speak, I thought, this has got to be one of the angriest people, maybe the angriest person I've ever met. And whether or not Mufon felt uncomfortable with his talk, or whether they had to make up for letting other speakers run over, uh, I think it might be the latter. During his talk, one of the um, people working with the conference walked up, said something in his ear. Larry looked very angry and said, they've told me I have to finish up my talk now, and he walked off stage. And he, uh, he said, first, anybody that wants to hear the rest of this can walk out with me. And a huge number of us did, and he finished his talk in the hallway. But after that, you know, again, he came into the city. There was something about this guy. Unlike anyone I had ever met, he was obsessed, and he was angry about whatever the hell had happened to him, and what his life was about was trying to find some answers and get some satisfaction on this. I, as we began to work together, my last intention was becoming friends. I was looking for a book-length project at that point. I had been involved in the field for about 12 years. This is an informal independent investigator, uh, written articles, uh, was trying to develop some kind of name for myself. And I thought, good, here's the project. This is the one to sign on to. He'd come down every few weeks. Um, he gave me everything that he had in terms of his service record, everything that had been written. But what I began to see was somebody who was really in a rage. And again, why go to all this trouble? He also, when he finally, when he presented his um, terms of working together. It was, as long as I can tell my story in my words, what I'd like you to do is do what you can to uh, find supporting material, to back me up if you can, but if you feel I'm lying, or I'm delusional, or anything else, you publish that. Uh, yes, it would be a schizophrenic type of book, but that is my agreement, and if we're able to complete the book and sell it, we're partners right down the line. I thought good for him. This is not the way somebody who is trying to deceive would present themselves. And as time passed, I began to identify aspects of his behavior that I'd call post-traumatic stress. Uh, we had our fallings out. He's a very intense guy. But I kept putting the story first and never taking his anger personally. And the months ran into years, and the years ran into almost a decade. And at a certain point, I overcame my own fear, and I got frightened very quickly after we got back from our first trip to England because of a number of things that were starting to happen in my life, and then he filled me in on things that he hadn't told me about, being held in this facility, um, other things, and at a certain point, I became very angry, too, and obsessed, and decided I had nothing better to do with my life for uh, the next number of years, and that plan of working for a year or two, spending a couple of thousand dollars having a great bestseller, having a movie, and uh, spending the rest of our lives endorsing checks and fighting off the women didn't quite come to pass. We both went technically bankrupt. I don't know if we'll ever make back the money we spent, but I wouldn't trade it now in retrospect for anything. Peter, stay with us. Back with more yep. of The Conspiracy Show after this timeout. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Peter Robbins is uh, with us. 
in studio, Victor Vigiani from, well, he is uh, from another planet. <laughs> he certainly introduced me uh, to uh, a whole other uh, universe out there. And, uh, I'm, you know, I guess in, in, a, in, a, in a lesser degree, uh, Peter, uh, Victor Vigiani is my Larry Warren in the sense that he opened up this whole, and I never know whether everybody to, should have one. Yes, to thank him or to curse him, uh, because you know <laughs> your life is never the same. But obviously, you know yeah. you are dealing with uh, an angry, intense uh, individual who experienced uh, some horrific things here, uh, and. Um, the least of it, I guess, at the hands of the uh, the ET entities. It was the the worst exactly. of it at the the hands of um, NSA or, or or what have you. But exactly. let me try to figure something out here because uh, the uh, the Rendlesham Forest uh, incident will be one of the episodes uh, that uh, viewers will uh, will get to watch when they see the conspiracy show on TV, mm. and um, it'll be uh, one of the the the, uh, the episodes towards the tail end of March. I think it airs, and. Um, you know, when I'm trying to uh, arrange interviews with with uh, some of the other high-profile participants in this incident, the, the, the you know the James Penistons or the John Burroughs or the Charles Halts, uh, and you know the, you go back and forth with the names, uh, you know uh, Larry Warren, there seems to be a real disconnect between these people. There's do they resent, I mean, they, the, the, the Penistons, the Burroughs, mm. the Holtz, do they resent Larry? Are they angry with Larry? What's going on there? Can you tell yes. me what's... Well, I'll give you my best take on it. And, um, you know, common sense dictates that I may not be the most objective person, but honestly, I try to be. And for me, I don't care. Um, for me, I just follow the path. And if somebody can show me tomorrow that I was all wrong and I've been misled, I won't lose any sleep over it. I'll acknowledge uh, that and go on with my work. Um, let's remember here that when Larry got out of the service and he met up with uh, Coventry, Connecticut Police Lieutenant Larry Fawcett, who, um, along with Barry Greenwood, another American researcher in the 80s, published a book called Clear Intent about the UFO cover-up. Larry Fawcett was a skilled um, interviewer. He's a police uh, lieutenant. And he did an extraordinary job, I think, of getting an initial interview out there with Larry. In the course of that, my co-author gave Larry Fawcett every piece of information he could remember, which included the names of the other men who he had seen, knew were involved, spoke with after the fact. And that included, um, uh, Lieutenant, at the time, Deputy Base Commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles I. Hall. This when the case broke, and it broke huge in the United Kingdom in early October of 1983 in the tabloid press, and I think I clocked something like a hundred newspaper articles in the first three months or so. It was most of them quite distorted, many of them extremely superficial, but the case was out, and Mr. Halt's name was out there, and you can make a bet that it did not, it was not a great thing in his life, and probably not his career. Uh, I'm sorry about that, um, but in a sense, all of the men were outed by Larry. He didn't clear it with them first. Because of his freedom of information uh, request? Well, um, yes. Um, it was for many years uh, until the MOD started releasing information on it in the UK. It remained the single-page document, official, undeniable document, uh, confirming the reality of the event, and Mr. Halt's signature was attached. 
I understand why um, he has developed and has had an attitude about Larry from the get-go. And I respect it. Again, I understand it. But I think it is time to put it in the past. Also, um, all of these men um, in Colonel Halt's uh, terminology were meddled with. And I was not even aware to the degree that um, Penniston and Burroughs were uh, until they spoke uh, in the United Kingdom at a conference we all spoke at on December 28th. It was infuriating, it was fascinating, it was tension-filled, and it was actually quite sad as well. At one point, Jim Penniston described that first night as the worst night of his life in terms of the impact that it's had on his life. And I think there were efforts to drive wedges between these individuals. It's one more very simple technique to keep the full truth from coming out. Um, Jim and John and Larry um, have been in quite regular contact uh, over uh, the past few years, um, and I, I see a real cordiality between them. Um, again, uh, I have respect and admiration for Mr. Hall. He's a very courageous former American uh, officer to come forward and put his reputation on the line with what he knows happened and what he can say, and I know he can't say everything he'd like to say. Uh, he is on a pension. He is a member of the Old Boys Network, so to say, as an honorably retired officer. Larry left the service again with an honorable, but he was an airman. And those um, that bad blood has had a certain amount of re residual blowback over these decades. Uh, but I heard, you know, the guys acknowledge Larry from the stage in December. Um, when we met with, with Mr. Hall face-to-face -face years ago, and that entire transcript of our interview with him is, is in the book, um, I saw him look at Larry and say, I can't say whether or not you were involved, paraphrasing, of course. We weren't in the same place, but you understand I have to be careful. Um, so there are forces at play here to keep these men um, not you know, 100% copacetic. Well, I think I th we're working through it. Yeah, I think that, that that's a perfect point to go in another direction with this conversation mm. because yes. I just, I really enjoy and am compelled, uh, I guess through a bit of angst and anger, to look <laughs> at the political aspects of this. Yes. And in, oh, in the boy. book, in the book you've got a quote from Nicholas uh, Roston regarding the role of the NSA, and, and he, he quoted at a, at a conference he was speaking at, a symposium, that his experience with the NSA was that it is never, never, never we don't exist, we don't collect, we don't know anything, and if there's a bullet uh, coming at the head of the President of the United States, we can tell you the precise time it's going to arrive. Now that kind of statement to me indicates that uh, not only were these men messed around by high-level um, people within the intelligence community, but there is another agenda at work to keep this stuff so carefully covered up and yeah. Victor Marchetti, I think really uh, former executive assistant to the director of the CIA, said it even more specific. Can you give us um, like an overall take on, on the, the political aspects of how this event can really indicate that this was a nuclear event in a lot of ways. It was an incident that dealt with nuclear weapons, and yeah. it has a lot to do with national security, which is highly politicized. Well, 
Um, I, I'm so glad you brought this up, Richard, and thank you for bringing up uh, those specifics uh, with that, Rostin and Marchetti. I, that I was Victor, it, actually. That was Victor. Oh, I'm sorry, Victor. That's all right. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I, the, the background work here, and this touches right on um, your work in the exopolitical movement. Um, we are dealing with the most highly charged subject in human history, as far as I'm concerned here. And we now have more and more uh, distinguished uh, officers coming forward, uh, like Robert Salas, talking about the nuclear UFO connection. Um, this goes back to uh, certainly things that happened in the 70s in uh, nuclear bases in the Midwest. But to cut to uh, the chase here, if indeed we are dealing with intelligences so highly advanced that they can, in Mr. Halt's words, adversely affect the ordinance. And let me parenthetically insert here that he told us to our face in that meeting we had with him. Uh, and he chose the location. Uh, it was um, the food court of the uh, Pentagon City shopping mall right across the street from the United States Pentagon that somehow, and he couldn't explain it any better than you or I can, those beams of light that went down into the weapons storage area somehow penetrated through the ground cover, ground, um, earth, steel, concrete, made their way down to stored nuclear ordnance and adversely affected the ordnance. Now, absolutely, um, we, can assume, we can deduce that it didn't adversely affect them in the most adverse way, or that part of England would be a smoking hulk now of three-eyed monsters and strange animals uh, who were mutants and God knows what else. That didn't happen. What we do understand now from this and from numerous other sources at this point, some of which were covered in a very well-publicized um, press event at the National Press Club in Washington last September 28th, as I recall, headed by Salas Withhalt and other uh, officers and pilots, was that these things are able to shut down our nuclear devices. Now, Let's face it, the military mindset is a very macho one and one that likes to uh, radiate control. Um, allegorically, um, where the lines are drawn in the dirt is what is the basis of nationalism and why, you know, you're a Canadian and I'm an American and blah, 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 instead of seeing ourselves first as human beings and citizens of this remarkable little planet that we're doing so much to hurt. If people, God forbid, for these folks, started thinking of themselves first as human beings and uh, not acknowledging nationalism to the degree that we do, the folks that pull the strings wouldn't have so many strings to pull. And the people that run the earth, uh, those in power at every level, whether it is corporate, actually, as well as governmental, um, I think they're struggling with this untenable problem. Uh, so there are implications here for politics, for future history, for control. Uh, and let's face it, right now it has a lot to do with who controls the information about these things. As you guys are aware, there was an extraordinary meeting um, not a month ago in Saudi Arabia, which is a yearly event involving heads of major industries and uh, world-class uh, speakers and uh, former leaders. Uh, last year, I think the keynote speaker was Tony Blair. This year, uh, Bill Clinton spoke. Uh, the head CEO of Disney, uh, I think um, Yahoo, Microsoft, some of those companies, as well as major oil companies, were there at the invitation of the Saudi government, as were 
Stanton Friedman, a very distinguished uh, son of Canada and New Jersey, and nuclear physicist and ufologist, Jacques Vallée, same, uh, um, also a ufologist, and uh, my friend and colleague Nick Pope, a former of the Ministry of Defense. And more will be coming out on this in the next weeks and months, but these world leaders and some of the most powerful individuals in the world weren't smirking, weren't, you know, getting wiggly in their seats. They were listening to what these gentlemen had to say about what they knew about this particular subject. Granted, their interests in it may bear differently than ours do, but they were taking it seriously. Things are beginning to change, but not in, you know, um, open uh, dissemination of information, um, as some folks uh, would like or feel is around the corner. Um, I don't feel it's around the corner, but that it is in the process of happening behind major closed doors, and thank God, with the help of people who are helping to educate people like Victor and forming more of a core of educated, knowledgeable uh, individuals that would like to see this change and who are there for their friends to help to educate them. Peter, uh, let me uh, take it back to Larry for a second. Uh, yes. you, you said something uh, earlier about uh, the, the threats, the uh, not-so-thinly-veiled vin- threats that, uh, you know, if they were to speak out, uh, bullets were cheap, quote-unquote. That's the quote. Bullets uh, still, as far as I know, are rather inexpensive. <laughs> Why is it that Larry Warren uh, and others are able to uh, to go about to speaking openly about this to anyone who will listen? Yes. Oh, I, I think that uh, that's an excellent question. Um, yes. Um, on the surface, oh, we've got to shut these people up. Let's kill this one. Let's make this one go crazy. This one's going to have a heart attack. This one's going to have a car crash. Um, and as they say, you don't have to be a paranoid to know that somebody is following you. Such things have happened. However, in the light of somebody who is extremely public, very outspoken, somebody you can attack and belittle, say, well, you know, they want the attention, or, you know, uh, they're a bit unhinged, or they're a publicity seeker, the worst thing you could do would be to... Um, have them have a heart attack while their car's going off the road while a plane drops out of the sky and blows them up. If anything, uh, I think, um, especially with somebody like Larry, the forces that be, we've done our damage. When that book came out, I didn't hold anything back, and I don't think, you know, uh, Larry had any intention of doing it either. He may still know some things that he hasn't said, and that's his business. However, why bring attention? Because even if he had the most natural death in the world, you know half the people that follow the story are going to assume that he was murdered. So they should send him vitamins and hope he lives a long life and, you know, that just not many people listen to his story or write him off as, um, you know, uh, some attention seeker. Yeah, I found that, it, for yeah, me, is yeah. more logical than the, uh, yeah. the more cartoonish, surfacey version of Take Him Out. I found one of the statements in the book that was uh, very disturbing that, that the Bentwaters' uh, location had one of the highest uh, suicide rates. Yes, I'm sorry to say I was able to confirm that in um, the monthly Air Force publication. Um, I forget what it was called, but uh, boy, did I get to sharpen my skills at the time. And this is all analog. This is pre-internet uh, or you know going online or anything. I just poured through print and information sources, and that is a fact. In fact, as you know, 
Um, for me, the most galvanizing event here, and I'm speaking in very human terms, whatever they're up to, I'm, I've only been in this for 35 years, what do I know? But I can observe the human condition and make uh, judgments and draw deductions based on that. There was a young man who was uh, in the service with Larry. He was uh, a young uh, airman from Alabama who went through that same debriefing with the film strip and the threat with a Bible in his lap, praying quietly to himself. Um, I think uh, it's fair to assume that he uh, was kind of overwhelmed by this, that he was a religious individual, maybe more fundamentalist in his thinking, could not reconcile what he believed, what he knew with what he was being told, when AWOL shortly after uh, was met by, I believe, FBI at O'Hare Airport in Chicago, put on the next plane to England, met by MPs in London, brought back to base, and to the best of our knowledge, without any counseling or help to try to reconcile this, was put back in active service. And not long after this, as you know from the book, Larry and I think a sergeant were patrolling the ring road uh, just with inside the base perimeter when they got a call that this man was, um, he was on the tarmac. It was him on the Motorola saying that he couldn't take it anymore and things like that. And they responded. And they were the first two people to come upon his lifeless body after he had blown his head off with his M16. Now that galvanized Larry and ultimately that galvanized me. And in fact, on October 28th of 1997, with a copy of his copy of Left at Eastgate in hand, Member of Parliament, former Chief of Staff of the Ministry of Defense, Peter Hill Norton, went out onto the floor of the House of Lords and went one-to-one -one with the then Secretary for Defense asking four very specific questions out of our book. One of them was what knowledge you have on this young airman that committed uh, suicide after his involvement with this event on base. That's a huge part of the story for me. I can only make educated guesses about them, but this is a fact. Wow. Um, Peter, I, I hate to, to, to leave it there on, um, on a note like that, but we're, <laughs> we're going to do just that, and, and uh, we'll definitely revisit this. In the meantime, yes. uh, where can people get a hold of the book? Uh, leave us with, with, with a website. Well, um, um, they can uh, buy it from any online print source, Amazon.com, or, uh, you know, any of the big booksellers online. Um, it's published by Cosimo Press. Uh, the updated and expanded version was published in 05. It can, it's also available from the press. Anyone that's interested in an inscribed copy from me, um, you are welcome, if they contact you, to give them my personal email address, and we'll arrange to get a copy to them. Okay, left at Eastgate. A first-hand account of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, the investigation and cover-up. Peter Robbins, thank you so much for this, and I look forward to uh, running into you down in Phoenix in a week. You bet. And gentlemen, um, thank you again for the opportunity to talk about this uh, to my friends in Canada, and I'd be honored to be uh, a return guest at some point in the future. Excellent work, Peter. Great to have you on. Thanks a lot. Peter Robbins. All right, Victor, thank you. You're most welcome. Very disturbing in a lot of ways, wasn't it? You know, it's, uh, it's gotten to the point, though, it, it, when we're talking about this whole field, I'm almost not becoming inured to it, but it's, you know what, it's just another day at the shop, unfortunately. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's, it's that disturbing that it becomes that mundane, but then again, 
when you take a look at some of the implications that uh, that Peter was was alluding to, and the way the planet is undergoing the changes that it's going through, and and the, and the number of people who know what's going on, not just people like myself who are in, in the research community, but the people who are in government positions who have this information at their fingertips and trying to hold it back from the rest of humanity in any way, shape, and form they can. Uh, nothing short of, of murder. Uh, it, it's amazing that this kind of information stays put within the, the minds of those small people. All right, well, uh, after this show, um, tomorrow morning I'm getting up, getting on a plane, heading over to the UK, and I'm going to meet Larry Warren down in Rendlesham Forest, and we'll, uh, we'll do an interview for an upcoming uh, episode of The Conspiracy Show on Vision TV. Victor, again, thanks. You're most welcome. Victor Vigiani, Canada's preeminent exopolitics researcher. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show after this. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ain't like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the second time speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. By our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Love from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the second hour of the program, The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. Richard Serrett with you right through until 1 o'clock. Joining us on the line is a a gentleman I actually uh, have talked to him a number of times uh, over the years, different radio stations, different incarnations of the program. Uh, This is the first uh, visit from him to The Conspiracy Show here at AM740, and uh, delighted to have him here. This is uh, uh, a a topic near and dear to my heart, and I know it's going to be uh, near and dear to yours when you you hear what Christian Wilde has to say. He's the author of the highly endorsed Hidden Causes of Heart Attack and Stroke and Miracle Stem Cell Heart Repair, the first book on how a patient's own stem cells are successfully used to treat end-stage heart failure. He's now in his fourth year of writing the Christian Wild Stem Cell Research Report. We'll tell you how to get the uh, the newsletter. Uh, this report documents and shares stem cell progress for more than 87 chronic diseases for families hoping and praying for a miracle for a friend or a loved one. And we are indeed living in an exciting time for medical science. Christian Wild, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Richard, so nice to be with you. Thank you very much. What is a stem cell? A stem cell, our bodies are comprised of stem cells, every organ, every tissue. And as we age, uh, the body is producing less of those stem cells, particularly bone marrow stem cells, because, Richard, as we talk through the evening, we'll be focusing on the fact that 
of all of the research that I do in writing the research report, uh, it's bone marrow stem cells that are the seem to be the the, the uh, cell of choice that are being used successfully for diabetes, for brain injury, for the heart, for for MS, for so many of the chronic diseases that we deal with and are so concerned with as a, a nation and as a humanity. So uh, uh, bone marrow cells, when we're very young, our bodies are producing vast amounts of bone marrow uh, cells, and those are the ones that are building our bodies. And as we get older, it is a decline in cellular activity and production that are involved or is involved in a decline in the aging process itself, but also the breakdown of our vital organs. The tissues uh, start to break down, but then you see wrinkles. If you're looking to physically see what happens, is you look at someone's face, and as they get uh, into their 40s and 50s, they're starting to get lines. Men are losing their hair. And all of it is a, a breakdown in, in cellular activity. And that's why I got involved with that, uh, something we'll talk about later, a way to grow more and produce more of your own stem cells. But Christian, An athlete in his prime is in his 20s, and all of a sudden he starts to get behind the curve, and here comes a younger athlete and beats him out of his position. And again, it's just the process that's going on as we're, our bodies are producing less stem cells. But Christian, you're talking about uh, <clears throat> these bone marrow stem cells, uh, non-embryonic stem mm-hmm. cells. And the, the, uh, the, the embryonic stem cell research is very controversial. Many people have um, you know, a great moral difficulties uh, with it, as I do, because they're harvesting embryonic stem cells from from fetuses and and th- this uh, area embryonic stem cells we we hear, we see Michael J Fox with Parkinson's on on television campaigning for the government to allow for 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 more uh, research and more money for this very controversial area why has that uh, dominated the playing field in the mind the hearts and minds of the public absolutely why is that but, well first of all none of us even knew about stem cells until Christopher Reeve uh, went before Congress, and the whole world was watching, and he said, because he was surrounded by embryonic researchers, and they said that the cures for catastrophic diseases could only come from embryonic stem cells. Michael J. Fox has changed his tune on a show, uh, an Oprah show, Dr. Oz was on, and uh, even Michael J. Fox admitted that they have been pursuing embryonic, and there appears to be no single success documented, recorded, any country of the world, not just the United States. They've been doing embryonic research in all these different countries. Now, here are the problems with embryonic research and embryonic stem cells. They are a very powerful cell, no question about that. But it, it's been made a, a moral issue, a religious issue, and that's not entirely true because the scientific problems that confront embryonic research 
are pretty much insurmountable at this day and age. And they are scientific. Let's look at them. Number one, the body rejects them. So a person would have to be on an immune-suppressive drug for the rest of their life if they had embryonic stem cells. Number one, that's number one. Number two, they create tumors. Now, the more the public has been becoming aware of it, they're starting to see uh, in the news adult stem cell treatments that are providing success. There are over 110 diseases. I've reported on 87 in the news report. But there's over 110 diseases being treated with adult stem cells. Um, So the question became not just the moral issue. A lot of people were just looking at that singular issue of destroying an embryo. Uh, The other issues are scientific. One of the points that I didn't mention was that these embryonic cells, in their versatility, can migrate to different parts of the body, not where they were intended to go to do their healing. They can scatter throughout the body. They've showed up in the brains of the uh, primates when they used them uh, in, in, in uh, monkeys. So here we are. We're about 10 years into stem cell research. We find that there is a, an adult cell called the pluripotent IPS, which means induced pluripotent stem cell. And that's what Dr. Oz explained to Oprah. And he said, I believe, Oprah, that the stem cell war is over. The issue is over. Because now we can take an adult cell, a skin cell, and revert it right back to almost embryonic state, one point removed. And by going back that far with it, we can do anything with that that we hope to do with an embryonic cell. But it will not be rejected. It will not create tumors. So the world was excited about that new finding. And of course, uh, I remember back in 2007, when Dr. Robert Lonza who's obviously one of the world's leading stem cell scientists, and he said it was like turning, referring to this discovery by uh, Yamanaka from Japan and Dr. Thompson from the University of Wisconsin. Thompson, incidentally, was the first person, the first scientist to uh, isolate the embryonic cell. And so Dr. then became, the word became from uh, Sir uh, Ian Wilmot, the band, the scientist who cloned Dolly the sheep. And he made the announcement that based on the induced pluripotent stem cell, that he would no longer pursue embryonic research. He said, we have found a better way. This must have been uh, tremendously gratifying because for, for quite some time, you weren't the only one out there, but you were one of the few voices in the wilderness when everyone was... Uh, singing the praises of uh, embryonic stem cell research, uh, which, mm-hmm. as you say, now appears to be uh, a dead end. We now, uh, the, the argument is now over. Uh, but there are, from what I understand, uh, in, in fact, I did speak with uh, a CEO of a company. He's an American living in, I believe, uh, Serbia, operating mm-hmm. a, a company over there. There are many uh, adult stem cell researchers that had to leave the United States 
Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, they're living in exile because this work was not allowed in the U.S. So now the mm-hmm. the doors are are, are are opening up finally. Mm-hmm. Christian Wilde is uh, with us. Uh, the website is www.myheartbook.com. Uh, tell us about the um, the uh, the uh, various um, uh, trials that uh, that are in uh, stem cell trials that are per- currently in progress. Well, let's start with the most exciting one. Now, this is the one that, after writing Hidden Causes of Heart Attack and Stroke, which took me five years to write, uh, many people would contact me and say they, they appreciated the preventive information and the natural uh, treatment of heart disease, but that the information had arrived for many of them very late in their disease process. And they were asking me if there's anything for their husband or themselves or, or a friend who's in third or fourth stage heart failure. Now, 22 million people right now today are dying worldwide of heart failure and 5 million in the United States. There has never been a cure for heart failure. We were, we were always told that once the heart muscle is damaged, it would remain so and it would never turn around. That would be the condition, and eventually they'd go through the stages of heart failure. And seven and a half years is the life expectancy. Half of those patients don't make five years. So it was a very pertinent research project for me because I wanted to find something that could give some hope and and some positive results for people. Sure enough, it was available with adult stem cells where they take stem cells from your own thigh muscle, and now they're even taking bone marrow stem cells uh, from a donor, and I've been in the surgeries, I've been there to to observe it. They take it from your thigh muscle, harvest it, listen to this, this is so exciting, because it's worked in over 2,000 patients right now. Uh, It may be the first major stem cell breakthrough to get FDA approval. And they take it from your thigh muscle, they multiply it, and then put it in a catheter, go up the femoral artery, and they've already designated the parts of the heart that are scar-tissued and damaged. They inject, while the patient, incidentally, is listening to music and is wide awake, they inject those stem cells into the areas of heart damage and scar tissue. The patient goes home the next day, Six weeks later, they're walking two miles a day. I have one, the oldest one done. I just called him again. I interviewed him for the book, Miracle Stem Cell Heart Repair, and we're going to use him in a TV thing we're doing. But I called him to say, after all these years, uh, Jose, you were the first patient in America to get your stem cells. Now, we're going back seven years. How are you doing today? And he laughed. He said, I... I haven't thought about my heart in five years. He said, I went back to work in four weeks, driving truck. I've been working ever since. I've never had a single heart-related issue. And at that time, when he had his stem cells, Richard, he had already had four heart attacks and had 11 stents put in. So I'm sharing this hope with people out there because I've been able... Uh, people have heard me on the radio at different times and called or contacted me to see if I could help them get into the trial for one of these stem cell uh, projects because they were in 
final stage heart failure and there was no hope for them. Now I've had six people do complete turnarounds, one with seven heart attacks, one with four prior heart attacks who was pronounced dead three times and revived the last time he had the attack. And uh, we interviewed him, and here he is two years later, uh, just just thrilled to death. His own doctors have no explanation. They, they can't believe it. They weren't uh, really up on what was happening with adult stem cells. So that's one. We can talk about what's happening with MS. We'll do that. Talk about Parkinson's. Let's do that when we come back, uh, Christian. Christian Wilde is with us, the author of Miracle Stem Cell Heart Repair, talking about some of the stem cell trials currently in progress. We'll also tell you how to get a hold of his uh, newsletter, and uh, we'll do that on the other side. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show here on AM seven forty. Listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Back with Christian Wilde, author of Miracle Stem Cell Heart Repair, and the website is www.myheartbook.com. We've hooked up to that on uh, richardserrett.com as well. So, some of these other uh, stem cell trials currently in progress. Uh, you mentioned MS. Mm-hmm. There are uh, tw- uh, 17 of 21. MS patients, totally disease-free, after four years, from the University of Chicago at the Feinberg School of Medicine. And these patients had bone marrow stem cells injected into their uh, bodies, and 17 out of 21 are just disease-free. They're also doing it with diabetes 2, pardon me, and diabetes 1. These are in trial now. They're moving well through the trial, and no major setbacks. Christian, this almost sounds too good to be true. It is too good to be true. <laughs> Sometimes the truth is, is that, well, first of all, once we heard that one day stem cells could heal, and I don't think there's a scientist in the world that would disagree with the statement that everything, including the aging process, will be conquered through stem cell therapy. When they asked Robert Lanza, the gentleman scientist I mentioned earlier, incidentally Jonas Salk and Christian Barnard, two of the world's leading scientists, have referred to Dr. Lanza as a real genius Uh, and a pioneer. They have even likened him to Albert Einstein himself. He's a very young man. But when he was on the Barbara Walter special, he said, "If you and this is a paraphrase, but if you need a heart, we'll grow you one. If you need a lung, we'll grow it. If you need a heart valve, we will build it from your own tissue. If you need a liver or a kidney, we can do that. And then he said it may be possible, and he didn't say it was that far away, that we could live to be a healthy 150. So every time your heart muscle starts to break down, wear down, you simply inject more adult stem cells, bone marrow adult stem cells, and those stem cells will rebuild the heart tissue. And not only the heart tissue, maybe later on we'll talk about 
the building of, uh, of body parts. But, uh, yes, you could do that. It's about a 40-minute procedure, maybe an hour. And uh, one of the things that I'm involved with is this uh, bone marrow. Those of you who will look at the website, more bone marrow stem cells, because that's I'm taking them, and that's my belief that uh, that causes your body to release two and a half to three million more stem cells within an hour after you take it. So you're countering, to some degree, the breakdown, the cellular breakdown. What? Um, how does? How do these? Without getting too technical, how do these bone marrow adult stem cells know what type of tissue to rebuild? If you inject them uh, into the into the heart muscle, how do they know that here we are in the heart? We better build heart muscle versus kidney tissue or liver tissue. That's one of the best questions I've heard in a long time, Richard, and I figured you probably would come up with a good one. Sometimes the bone best questions are the obvious ones. are repair cells. They go on a journey. They're like little doctors. They go through your system, through your bloodstream, and they repair wherever they see damage. <laughs> is that amazing? It is. It, it's, in other words, they say, wait, guys, over here, we got a problem in the kidney over here. Or we got a problem with this person's liver. Or this person just had a, a cut themselves. We need to go and bring a lot of our buddies with us because that needs more concentration so they'll heal, heal, heal quickly. When we're a kid and cut ourselves, you know, we heal in 48 hours. As we get older, it gets harder. So that's what bone marrow stem cells do. That's their task. They are repair cells. But they exist already in your body, so why don't they do that on their own now? Because there's not enough of them. Ah. Uh, since, since you got into your 20s, they started uh, getting uh, sluggish and, and were not being produced uh, nearly as effectively as they did when you were young. So these uh, adult bone marrow stem cells... Mm-hmm. could literally stop the aging process, or at least severely curtail the aging process. No doubt. Oh, my Lord. No doubt. And, of course, they're using other forms of stem cells. They're using umbilical cord stem cells. They're building livers with umbilical cord uh, cells. They're using uh, fat cells, adipose cells from your stomach. They're using uh, mesenchymal bone marrow stem cells, which we're talking about. What about Parkinson's? But- Parkinson. Now, here's another good question. You're, you're in Canada, right? I am. So I was on the radio about two years ago with one of the world's leading Parkinson's physicians and scientists. Matter of fact, he is the only one who had cured Parkinson's. And one of his patients, or the patients that he did cure from it, he appeared before the Senate committee with Senator Brownback in 2002, I think it was. And uh, uh, so I asked him, I said, you know, you're a Canadian, right? He said, yes, he is. And I said, well, uh, they seem to have an awful lot of of uh, Parkinson's disease in countries of very cold climate. And he said it was true. And he didn't uh, offer or proffer an opinion why. Well, I just found out why. I found out why MS and Parkinson's are more prevalent in uh, Norway and Finland and Switzerland and Canada. 
It has to do with vitamin D. Ah. Deficiency in vitamin D. The further they found out that people who live at the equator have the smallest amount of MS and Parkinson's. The further you get from the equator, from the sunshine, and then we, as, a, as this last generation, we were told, stay out of the sun, cover up when you're in the sun, and cover yourself with, with, uh, with lotion and, uh, and uh, sunscreen. So what we've done is we've made ourselves deficient in vitamin D. Now, to answer another part of that question um, about Parkinson's, is there is 67, I covered this in the last, not last issue of the news report, I think the one before, uh, there are 67 medical facilities treating Parkinson's with high doses of coenzyme Q10. Now, for 67 medical facilities to be involved in this study, it gives me a pretty good indication that they're on to something. What is what is the, the what are they what are they treating it with again? What did you call that? They're giving the, the patient twelve hundred uh, milligrams of vitamin E, right, and twelve hundred milligrams, if I have it correct, twelve hundred milligrams of coenzyme coenzyme Q ten, and then there's a second group that they're giving twenty four hundred milligrams of coenzyme Q ten looking for benefit for Parkinson patients. Okay, but what about the adult stem cells? Is anyone treating Parkinson's with adult stem cells? There are trials going on. Uh, people can, well, I try to cover it. What I try to do is every time I see a real, real credible study that's FDA uh, monitored, I try to put them in the news reports because people are looking for macular degeneration, for instance and uh, many other many other diseases. Well, let's talk a bit about that, uh, the, uh, the report, when we come back. We'll tell uh, people how they can uh, subscribe uh, to it. Christian Wilde is with us, uh, the author of the Miracle Stem Cell Heart Repair book. It does sound like a miracle. It sounds too good to be true, but adult bone marrow stem cells may, in fact, uh, be the key. Uh, that, uh, that can stop the aging process, that can repair damaged heart muscle, reverse heart disease, cure Parkinson's, diabetes 1 and 2, lupus, MS, on and on, even perhaps HIV. We'll find out about that as well. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show with Christian Wilde. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We're back with Christian Wild. Uh, Christian, tell us uh, about the stem cell research report. Well, I started doing it uh, because so many people were contacting me and saying, we hear about uh, stem cells. Uh, we don't know how far along they are, how many studies are going on, and we got family members that need that information. Uh, so, and they, besides that, there was the hope and the hype. We don't know what to believe in. Uh, we hear, you know, different stories that embryonic research is going to produce the, the cures. And uh, they really weren't aware. Now, I didn't even come to this subject with a, uh, a dog in the fight, Richard. I didn't, I didn't much care which one was doing the healing. All I cared about 
practice, let me report on the one that's showing the most promise now, while people in this lifetime need the help. And so the more I start doing it, and it's a four-color presentation, it's, uh, it takes a lot of work to do, but you will see here and read information in there that you people would not have heard otherwise. So uh, more and more, we, we just keep finding breakthroughs, and we report on, on uh, even young children with cerebral palsy and what they're doing at Duke University, uh, people with stroke, stroke damage. A young girl in India went into a coma. Her parents realized that she wasn't going to come out of it at a given point, and so they injected her own bone marrow stem cells in her brain, and uh, within a few days she came out of it and is back to normal. So <laughs> it just it's very challenging, but it's very encouraging to be able to, and gratifying, to share that information with people. And how do people subscribe? Uh, you can go to the website at myheartbook.com. That's one word, myheartbook.com. And if you're not online, you can call at 866-STEM-123, 866-STEM-123. And our operators, if they're busy, will get back to you in a couple of days. We get such a response when we do a show like yours, Richard, that it, it's uh, hard to keep track of all of it. But uh, we're very happy about it. Let me get back to uh, Parkinson's uh, just for a moment. Uh, in fact, uh, when I was producing a talk show at another radio station, uh, one of the guests, who should walk in but um, uh, Muhammad Ali's limo driver. Oh, yeah. And he's uh, a, a good, great friends, lifelong friends with Muhammad Ali. He spends a great deal of time up here in Toronto because he's involved in the fight game and he or- organizes uh, uh, boxing matches up here in Toronto as well. So he's sort of back and forth. And uh, I said, I had a guy on my show, Christian Wilde, um, talking about adult stem cells, and is is Muhammad Ali aware of this? Because I mean, he's probably uh, the most famous individual on the planet and the most famous Parkinson sufferer on the planet. I thought, wouldn't it be great if if Muhammad Ali would get involved in one of these uh, these stem cell trials, be cured, and show the world? I mean, that's maybe what it needs to to really catapult this information to the to the forefront and into the public consciousness. I mean, have you have you ever tried to get a hold of Muhammad Ali or get this information to him? No, but I was getting on an airplane in Las Vegas, and his daughter Lila is that her name? Yes. She was boarding the plane, and I thought to myself, I would love to talk to her and ask her and then refer her to a particular doctor at UCLA for her uh, her father. Um, I find there are two drugs in particular that several of my friends are doing well with, with Parkinson's. Now, those of you who are listening, if you know someone, I'm not giving you medical advice here. I'm just going to suggest that you talk to your doctor about a drug called Azotec and another one called Stelivo. I believe I pronounced it right. Those in combination have stabilized uh, three of my friends. And I want to tell you, there is something called deep brain stimulation. Uh, It's DBS. And it is literally an implantation of electrodes in the brain that keeps the tremors, that silences the tremors. I don't understand, and I asked this particular professor, that here is a fellow who has cured a Parkinson's patient in 2002 
And uh, why hasn't they been jumping up and down about that and say, go ahead and do it to more patients? There has been a disconnect, I have to say. Everything about embryonic stem cells has been in the news. And suddenly, oh my goodness, when we get the law turned around, you're going to see cures for every disease. And uh, the cures for the diseases that they told us would come from embryonic have already come or are coming right now, no question about it, from adult stem cells. So my, my theory here is why spend the money when we cut people right now if they could just, if these, fund, if these trials were funded better, we would see these cures in the next 10 years. Well, Christian, the, the cures to all of these diseases are right here in our own bodies. Do you think it's possible, and I know this is wildly speculative, but I can't see any other reason that everyone isn't jumping on board this than that big old bogeyman, Big Pharma. I mean, they have trillions of dollars at stake here. Well, you did hit on something. They're looking, yes, they definitely are looking for biological and uh, pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, you mentioned HIV earlier. Uh, they've even tried to to um, to uh, get patents and control turmeric, which I write a lot about. A turmeric spice. is an amazing spice, right? As a matter of fact, I changed the name of the news report at a given point uh, when I found some the most miraculous things that are coming out of turmeric research uh, and have been for years. You and I are going to do a whole show just on turmeric. Yeah, we will. That's a yeah. good idea because there's a lot to that. Anyway, as far as pharmaceutical, big pharma, yeah, they want to create uh, drugs that they can sell us for $300 a month. Whereas uh, it's not just enough. And let me follow that point. I am talking to Dr. Carlos Lima in Portugal. Carlos Lima has 165 quadriplegic and paraplegic patients walking with walkers. This is Christopher Reeve's condition. That, that was a, pardon me, that was spinal injury. Right. And uh, I say to Carlos, you've been publishing now, you're teaching this in seven countries. You've got 165 patients. You've sent me the videos on them. Why aren't everybody jumping on this? You've been doing it for years. He said, Chris, there's no money here. What do you mean? Well, there's no money to be made. I simply take the patient's stem cells from his nose, process it, inject it in his spine, and in three months, and he shows me the MRI before and after, the spine is healed. Now they've got to rehab that patient. And, uh, and, you know, he said it costs about 35000 one time for the surgery, and then the, the cost of rehab. And you would think if this came from an embryonic stem cell, it would be all over the news. It would be everywhere you look. It's just, uh, it's kind of mind-boggling. Uh, people are hoping and praying for cures. And as I, I don't think I mentioned it, but there are 3,600 FDA trials going on right now. How, how hard it, or how hard or easy is it to get involved in one of these stem cell trials? Let's say you've got uh, MS and you want to get involved in a bone marrow adult stem cell trial for MS. How hard or easy is it to get involved? Well, uh, the trial that they've been doing is called uh, remitting 
relapsing MS. And that was one of the requirements. In other words, the FDA says if the patient has been on uh, the current beta interferon therapy and it failed, well, take them and put them in the trial. So the trial sets out certain guidelines. For instance, there's an age bracket. Uh, they don't want 80-year-old people in it because their stem cells, first of all, are not are not strong. Uh, there are other conditions that could thwart the trial results. So they'll pick a, a, a population of patients that have a good chance of benefiting from the, the therapy. Now, if you fit the criteria, a lot of my heart failure people, uh, they find out because they have such a low ejection fraction and maybe some arrhythmia, arrhythmia problems, they say, if that patient will have a defibrillator put in, we'll go ahead and do it. So, you know, there's just, each trial has its own set of, of prerequisites, guidelines, and parameters. And up here in Canada, is it is it possible to get involved in, in stem cell trials up here? Oh, yeah. It's paid for. These are, you know, when you, when you go into a trial, you're going to get the best care overall, uh, because they're going to monitor you for everything, and uh, you don't get charged for it. And on top of that, they're probably going to save your life. I don't. I've not heard of anybody dying from a, a, a adult stem cell trial. Maybe they have been, but I've never heard of one. I know in the heart failure trials that they haven't had that problem. So, with with adult stem cells, uh, if you know, these uh, come to the fore and become part of regular uh, t- treatment, that means virtually an end to transplants. Yeah, a, transpl- a heart transplant uh, is very expensive. And, uh, you know, you bring up a good point here. Let me just kind of float with it for a minute. Uh, I've been asked many times, so in one of the news reports, I wrote a section on how one single treatment, like this one we're talking about, heart failure, how it can affect the healthcare system worldwide. But for now, let's talk about, I'll talk about the United States and Canada. Person has a heart attack. Here comes the angiogram, possibly the open heart surgery, certainly a whole host of medications and doctor's visits. Go along a little while Maybe they decide we're going to do a, give you a pacemaker. These are very expensive procedures. Or we're going to give you a defibrillator, another major expense. Or in a few years, we've got to go back in and do another open-heart surgery. And now, as a person enters the last stages of heart failure, there are 800,000 admissions to the hospital a year for all the patients. You have to go in and be stabilized, have the water drained. It's about a six-day average visit to the hospital. You're talking billions of dollars. You're talking billions. $39.2 billion a year for heart failure. I asked Dr. Deeb, one of the world leaders, in, and he's been a real mentor to me, I asked him, how, long, how much you think it would cost if you did one of these one-time procedures with stem cells, because it's a minimally invasive one-time procedure. 
he estimated around $30,000. And, and you will save all of the heartache and all of the cost of open-heart surgery in uh, stenting, in pacemakers, in hospital visits, and all the rest of it. So that's what one cure never mind for one disease which is the number one killer in the world. And never mind diabetes, which is now an, an, an absolute epidemic. Absolute epidemic. And they're treating it with stem cells. They have been for several years. There are also children, uh, you know, 11, 12, 13-year-old children uh -huh. uh, who have, who have a adult diabetes. That's right. Yeah, and those in the pre-diabetes, uh, I had the figures on it. There, if you think $39.2 billion for, uh, for heart uh, Failure is big. The number, I don't even want to guess at what I had, because I might be wrong. But it's a, an incredible number. And diabetes now is becoming the number one killer yes. worldwide, whereas up till now it's been heart, uh, heart disease. What about uh, cancer, adult stem cells to cure cancer? Adult cells, pluripotent, induced pluripotent cells, fat cells. Belgian cord cells are doing a lot with that. What they do for what they proved at the Feinberg School of Medicine was the MS uh, procedure. That same procedure has been applied to diabetes, and now it's being applied to uh, lupus. What they do is they reset the immune system. They give you chemotherapy, a lighter dose than one would have when they have cancer, and then they would resupply the body with its own healthy stem cells. They've been taken out and purified and injected back into the body. And from that time on, they reset the immune system to zero. And it's working so well in those areas that will be applicable to many, many other diseases. Like somebody discovers a drug for one type of disease, and they find out it works for five other diseases. Pretty, pretty amazing. I'll tell you, it's an exciting. Like you said earlier, this is a really exciting time. Uh, let me ask you again about about uh, cancer, though. Can it uh, ha have there been any trials where stem cells have cured cancer? There's twenty four trials, twenty four hundred trials going on uh, using uh, stem cells for for cancer. I've reported on. Uh, how effective they've been in, in controlling. One of the big findings, I think, was the fact that, you know, a doctor says to a patient, we think we got it all. We think we got it all. It doesn't say we got it all. Telling, talking to a breast cancer patient or a liver patient or whatever, we, or a brain cancer, we think we've got it all find out in six months a year it comes back with a vengeance in so many cases. They now are able to, and I think it was Duke University that the scientists found that there are rogue cells, cancer cells, that resist chemotherapy. And they hide in the recesses of the brain or the tissue, and then they come back with a vengeance, like I said. And they're able now to mark these these uh, rogue cells, they call them. And they're able then to concentrate on eliminating them. So it's an exciting time. 
it's very uh, discouraging sometimes to think about how many years and how many billions and billions of dollars have been spent on cancer therapy and the results for some people it works other people it doesn't no we're losing the war quite clearly mm-hmm. and we're losing the cancer war that's true Christian Wilde Christian Wild is with us, author of Miracle Stem Cell Heart Repair, and you can subscribe to the uh, Christian Wilde Stem Cell Research Report uh, by logging on to www.myheartbook.com, or if you're not online, you can call 866-STEM, S-T-E-M-123, 866-STEM-123. Uh, let's take another time out, come back, and uh, some more questions remain as we discuss the miracle of adult stem cells here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We're back with Christian Wilde author of Miracle Stem Cell Heart Repair. Uh, but as uh, you've heard, it, the, the stem cells, the adult bone marrow stem cells, do far more than simply repair heart tissue. Uh, they're being used in uh, uh, trials uh, all over the world, uh, curing uh, diabetes 1 and 2, lupus, uh, MS, uh, spinal cord injuries. It, it, to me, Christian, they should rename this thing and call it the, the uh, God cells. I mean, these things are truly miraculous. They could only come from God, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, they, they've made our bodies. I mentioned if we talk about regenerative medicine and the building of body parts. Well, let's get into it. This is fascinating. That's exciting, Richard. That is real exciting. We could live forever. Doctor, uh, the, the same scientist who developed and discovered the, the-, the theory and then the practice of myoblast skeletal stem cells for the heart, for heart failure, the ones we're talking about, the ones I wrote the book about, and all those patient stories who have been healed, the, the, the person, the scientist, Dr. Doris Taylor, who discovered that also is in one of the news reports because she was on international television about a year and a half ago talking about how she and Harold Ott from uh, Massachusetts General Hospital took a cadaver heart, stripped all the old stem cells out of the heart, and then injected that scaffolding, that remaining structure, if you will, lattice work, injected it with young mouse stem cells, healthy young mouse stem cells. About the fourth day, she walked into the laboratory, gave that heart a little jump start, and wow. It was beating. The heart started to beat. Oh, my Lord. How, how long had this heart been clinically dead for? Well, it could have been... It didn't even matter. It could have been a long time. Because once they stripped it of all the stem cells, it was just a translucent form that you were looking at. So I don't know whether it was a week, 10 days, or whatever. Oh, my Lord. But here it is, beating again. And I've seen pictures of it. And uh, 
that opened up a whole new ballgame. Paolo Maricciarini, who's also in one of my news reports, and gave me all of his images so I could use them. There's a lot of pictures in these reports. Uh, he took it one step further. He had a young girl who was about 30 years old. I think her name was Claudia. She had cancer of the trachea. And uh, there was no cure for it. He had a cadaver trachea from Italy sent to him in, in Barcelona, Spain. Stripped the stem cells out of it, just like the heart issue, injected the young girl's stem cells into the trachea, saved her life, and he's done several since then. And so now they're looking at how they can build a, uh, uh, a liver and a kidney. And Dr. Taylor said she's not talking about decades away. She's talking in a matter of years. That's why when Dr. Lanza said, and I quoted him earlier at the top of the program, if you need a heart valve, we'll build it for you from your own tissue. If you need a liver, we'll grow you one. My if you word. need a kidney, we'll grow you one. This is absolutely stunning. Absolutely amazing. Uh, okay, Christian, let's walk us through again how uh, people can get the, um, the, the stem cell uh, re- research report again. Okay. Uh, go to the website, www.myheartbook.com, or if you're not online, call 866-STEM-STEM-123. You can order 2004, or you can have last year, because it's all the same. It's going to be, they're going to be in trials for years. Uh, year one, I know we did a lot of work with uh, reporting on uh, breast cancer colon cancer and uh, all of that which we'll talk about at another time probably Richard but uh, so those are the two ways to get it online at uh, myheartbook.com or 866-STEM-123 well uh, this is absolutely mind-blowing information and uh, there's great hope I mean we, we seem to be on the the precipice of of Dare I say, miracle cures? I like uh, it. And uh, so, listen. I, I, I look forward to having you back on again. We're going to do a show on uh, on turmeric, this wonderful uh, spice that's found in uh, all sorts of cuisines around the world. And we'll talk about the amazing properties of uh, of this spice next time you join us. Mm-hmm. Christian Wild, thanks for for uh, for being with me tonight. Richard, thank you for the time. I really enjoyed it. All right. Until next time. And thank you, of course, for listening. Special thanks to Dan Ellison for technical production. Don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.